chapter 10 this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. And we'd invite the children, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to children's church if they like. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. It's on page 1190 in the Pew Bible. We're studying verses 1 to 18 this morning. I want to focus this morning on three words that could change your life. I know that sounds like one of those cheesy uh, infomercials late at night, but I'm totally serious. Three words that could change your life that if you were able to internalize these words and bring them down into your soul, they could absolutely revitalize and revolutionize your Christian life. Uh, Or even if you're not a Christian, maybe you're just kind of here checking it out, you're sort of on the fringe trying to explore this Christian thing and brought here by a variety of circumstances. I think if you could grasp the significance of these three words and really not just understand them but embrace them, I think the doors that seem locked to you might fly open and things would be clear. These three words are not magic words. This is not an incantation. Uh, Actually, this is something far more powerful than magic. This is truth. And so do you want to know what the three words are? You don't even have to write this down. They're so simple, you, you, could, uh, you, don't have, you could memorize this. In fact, they're already written for you in the Bible. So here are the three words you need to know. Once for all. Once for all. We have been studying the sacrifice of Jesus here in Hebrews chapter 7 uh, through 10. So the last couple months have you been in this sermon series with us? We've been looking at uh, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his priesthood. And, and basically what Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 has done is it's taken the great gem of Jesus' atonement and just kind of turned it for us. And so every Sunday we've looked at it from a different facet. A different facet. So, uh, for instance, chapter, go back and just a quick review. Chapter 7 was all about the high priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek being superior to the Old Testament priesthood. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, we saw that, that the heavenly uh, tabernacle of Jesus is superior to the earthly tabernacle that the Old Testament priests served in. And then in chapter 8, uh, verses 7 to the end of the chapter 8, Pastor Seth preached on that and talked about how Jesus' high priesthood has instituted a new covenant that's superior to the old covenant in the Old Testament. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, we saw that the old covenant merely cleansed us ceremonially and ritually, but Jesus' sacrifice actually cleansed us, our hearts, consciences, and souls before God. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the blood that Jesus shed. And that was the rest of chapter 9. So just facet after facet, angle after angle, the the author has been leading us in kind of an extended meditation on the amazing priesthood of Jesus Christ. And then finally we come to chapter 10 that sums it all up. And here we see that Jesus was offered on the cross, and there's these three words, once for all. Once for all. It is complete in Christ. There is no need for another sacrifice. So he goes on to explain that. 
uh, in chapter 10. So that's what chapter 10, verses 1 to 18 is all about. It's a meditation on the once-for-all nature of Jesus' death and priestly act for us on the cross. And if you look, uh, let me just sort of break this text down for you. The first four verses of chapter 10, uh, the author starts out by reminding us of the ineffectiveness of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the reason it was ineffective is because it was repeated day after day. It wasn't once for all. It happened again and again. Okay, so look at chapter 10, verse 1. The law, that is the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. This, this is a theme we've been looking at over and over, that the Old Testament system was a shadow that, that was given by God, but was insufficient. It was merely there to point us forward to Christ. So all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Scriptures, were a God-ordained system designed to point us to the coming of Jesus. He's the fulfillment of everything that Israel and the Jewish Scriptures hoped for. And so he's the reality. The Old Testament was the shadow. And then he gets specific. He says in verse 1, For this reason it, that is the Old Testament law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Then here's the logic. If it could, if the Old Testament could have made us perfect, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. So the argument goes, the very fact that the, the sacrifices are offered year after year, again and again, shows that they actually didn't work to truly cleanse us from sin. Because if they had, then well, that would have been it. And they would have been like, hey, guess it, it actually worked this time. We don't have to do these sacrifices again. But if you look at the Old Testament Scriptures, there's a kind of repeated cycle built into the sacrificial system that God gave to Moses. So, uh, look for instance, look in Numbers chapter 28. Go back to the Old Testament. It's on page 160. Put a bookmark here. Go back to Numbers chapter 28 in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 28. And here we have, actually in Numbers 28 and 29, we have a list of the the uh, sacrifices that Israel was commanded to make on a regular basis. And just notice how repetitive they are. Okay, This is one where if using the New Testament version, the New International Version of the Bible, you'll see these little headings which are helpful. So chapter 28, verses 1 to 8, you have the daily offering. So every day the priests had to make an offering. There was a morning offering. There was an evening offering. And they made them day after day. And then, verses 9 to 10, you have the Sabbath offering. So, one day a week on the Sabbath you did an offering, but what they did was they doubled the amount offered in the morning. So that was a, a special once-a-week offering. So now it's not just day after day, morning after morning, evening after evening. Now it's also week after week. There's a special offering. And then you have, verses 11 to 15, you, you have these monthly offerings. The, uh, now remember back then they were based on a lunar calendar, so it would be every new moon would be the day you'd make the new moon offering. So there was a, a monthly ritual that went along. So now it's day after day, week after week, month after month. And then finally, uh, starting in verse 16, you get the list of the annual celebrations and festivals. So you have the Passover festival, the Passover Seder, that offering. And then you have verses 26 to the end of chapter 28, the Feast of Weeks, or what we call a Pentecost. And then you have the Feast of Trumpets, chapter 29, 1 to 6. Then you have the great annual sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, 
chapter 29, verses 7 to 11, kind of the, the Good Friday of the Old Testament. And then you have verses 12 uh, to the end of the chapter, you have the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkoth uh, that, that came after that. So you have all of these annual sacrifices that were built in. So God programmed into the Old Testament system these repeated cycles, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And that doesn't even count all the other sacrifices that people could bring of their own free will for various other purposes, which that's a whole other discussion. So it's just this constant assembly line of sacrifice. I mean, if you went by the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it would have smelled like a good barbecue all the time. It's, you know, it probably smelled really good. You know, you drive down the road, you go by a barbecue place, and the window's down, and you're suddenly like, oh, wow, what was that? You know, <laughs> that's probably, you probably walk by the tabernacle, constantly barbecue smell, constantly animals being offered up. It was a sweet aroma to the Lord. And yet, the author of Hebrews argues, go back to Hebrews chapter 10, the argument is that the very repetitive nature of those sacrifices is evidence that they were merely symbolic and not effective. That they didn't actually make us right with God or cleanse our sins. They just pointed to the fact that we needed that. So he says in verse 3, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So God gave the Old Testament system to show us our need of a Savior and of a sacrifice, but the system itself was incapable of meeting the need that it showed us. So it points us forward to Jesus. And I think it's really important because I think there's something in this to be gleaned because I think it is our fallen human nature to instinctively gravitate toward repeated sacrifices, rituals, penances, behaviors. This is how we're kind of oriented spiritually as fallen human beings. You know, we want to do these sacrifices over and over. We want to find some ritual that if we just do it and we can sort of have control of it and we do it again and again, we're, we're right with God. Uh, this was a problem in the Old Testament, even the people of Israel. After God gave them these uh, sacrifices, what happened down the road is that the, many times the people of Israel would become corrupt and sinful and evil, would reject God, but they kept the sacrifices. So they were good at the sacrifices, even though they oppressed the widow and the orphan and there was injustice in the land and, and wickedness, but they kept the sacrifices. So the prophets would come along and the prophets would go, on God's behalf, I'm here to tell you, God's sick of your sacrifices. Like, What? How could God be sick of his sacrificial system? Because it doesn't really remove sin. You've missed the point. And that's just our human nature, to take a ritual, even a God-given ritual, and turn it into a repeated kind of thing. Um, Seth is going over to Africa, and he was telling me, he and I were talking about the text before he left, and he was saying this is a really important text when doing missions in cultures that still do animal sacrifices. To be able to say, look, Christ is sacrificed once for all. Uh, you know, so uh, in Africa, some of the traditional folk religions that still use sacrifices. In India, where Hinduism is all about massive sacrifices to millions of different gods. Uh, when I was over in Taiwan for a summer as a, in high school on a sort of a short-term mission kind of thing, I remember that summer um, sort of being freaked out one day as I was driving down the road and out in front of every home were bowls of fruit and fake paper money that were being offered. And I was like, what is this? And I was told it was kind of the, uh, the Taiwan Halloween. It was the day when all the ancestral spirits came out of their graves and you had to make an offering to them year after year to make sure that the ancestors were pleased. And so it's, I think it's just kind of the way we're, 
sinful human beings approach spirituality and religion is to come up with rituals and things like that. Now, we, we may think, well, that's not us. We're a Western sort of modern people. We don't have animal sacrifices. It's true. But I think that that impulse is still within us to want to come up with something to, to work with God and to say, okay, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to do this. And that should give me X, Y, or Z. Uh, have you ever bargained with God? My God, I'm in this mess. Maybe it's a mess we create ourselves. How can I get out of this? Lord, I would do anything for you to fix this situation. Okay, God, I will give up coffee for a year and I will give the money to sponsor a kid in Africa. Okay, anything, God. This is what I'll do. I promise I'll do this if you do that. It It comes naturally. We get into a tough spot and that bargaining, ritual, penance, kind of thing comes out of us. Uh, Lord, I, I know I, I blew it here, but now I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to get my act together and I'm going to pull it together this time as if we have to kind of make up for one thing with another. As if sin were a kind of calorie that we worked off with good behavior or something like that. And I think it's how we think naturally as human beings. I, I promise I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going I'm to listen to Jeremy's sermons online twice a week. I'm going to really pay off my debt here. I'm going to do something really dramatic. Um, but, you know, it's like, what do you do after you've given up chocolate for Lent 13 years in a row? Like, it's not working. The, the very fact that we repeat the ritual, the penance, whatever it is we have, shows... It's ineffectiveness. That's the argument here in Hebrews. Because, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats or for my little personal penances or whatever. It's impossible for those things to take away sins. So what are we to do then? How are we to be right with God and have hope of God's favor in our lives and of forgiveness and eternal life? And the amazing story of the Bible is that what we can't do by sort of building a little ladder from earth to heaven, God has done by coming down and doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. The Bible is not the story of get religious and work your way up. It's the story of I'm helpless, we need God to come down. And so it's the story of God coming down to give the once for all sacrifice. And so this is what Hebrews is celebrating, this sacrifice that's not day after day, it's week after week, month after month, but it's another three-letter phrase. It's once for all. So if you go back, for instance, and look at chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 27. Here's the theme. Unlike the other high priests, He, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins. Here it is. Once for all. When he sacrificed himself. Or chapter 9, verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Or chapter 9, verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The fact that Jesus died once for all shows that what He did actually worked. 
It worked. It actually removed our sins because it wasn't repeated again and again. So going back to Hebrews 10, this kind of expanded reflection upon the once-for-all nature of Jesus' sacrifice, what the author does is, just to kind of lay out the rest of the section, he gives three Old Testament texts, either quotes them or alludes to them, and he takes each text and argues from it the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. So he takes, um, we have verses 5 to 10, that's one Old Testament text. Verses 11 to 14 is the second one. And verses 15 to 18 is the third one. So you have three Old Testament texts from which he draws this, this reflection. Okay, so let's just quickly take those three texts and see how each of them shows that Christ sacrificed for once for all. The first one is verses 5 to 10. And here he's quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. And here's the quote. Verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, so again, it's about God coming in, not us building up. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. There's that Old Testament theme where God is saying, strangely enough, I'm sick of your sacrifices. I don't want them. That's not what I'm looking for. So what is it then he wants? Verse 7, Then I said, Here am I. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. God wants obedience. So originally this was written by David, but again, the Old Testament points forward to Christ, and even King David is a prefigurement. Uh, We call it in theological talk. He's a type of Christ, and he points forward to the coming of Christ. So these words are now taken up and put on the lips of Christ, and Jesus is saying, I'm here to do your will, O God. So then verses 8 to 10 is the explanation. First, he says, sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. So again, even though God said, make these offerings, these offerings are not ultimately what will satisfy God. They just point to the fact that we need a Savior. And then, verse 9, then he said, here am I, I have come to do your will. So he sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know, what was God's will for Jesus? It was to go to that cross. So when Jesus comes into the world saying, I'm here to do your will, it doesn't just mean I'm going to obey you. It means specifically, I'm here to fulfill my mission, which is to die once for all for sinners. I'm here to do your will, God. So from the beginning of Jesus' life, there was always looming before Him this destination point, the cross. And even though He seemed to be wandering all over Galilee, teaching and preaching, and people wondered who this guy was, the fact is, He was making a straight line for the cross. He was on His mission to fulfill God's will. There's a beautiful passage that this reminded me of in the Gospel of John. In fact, put a bookmark here and turn back to the Gospel of John real quick. (coughs) The Gospel of John chapter 19. It's the story of of when Jesus was finally crucified. And here we have Jesus' final moments on the cross. John chapter 19, verse 28. So here's Jesus. He's on the cross. He's about to die. It says, later, knowing that all was now completed, there's that sense of mission, and so the Scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. 
and a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge on it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, and here's another beautiful three words, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Once for all, it is finished. What did that mean? Did he mean like I'm about to die? No, no, no. He didn't say I am finished. He said it is finished. What's finished? The completed work of becoming our sacrifice for our sins. Now, this is actually a passage where, if you know a little Greek, you know, you don't typically need to know Greek to appreciate the Bible, but this is one of those passages where a little bit of Greek kind of makes the whole thing become like HD programming. It just goes, Woo! it becomes really bright and sparkly. Okay, the tense of this phrase in Greek, you may have heard this before, is something that's called in Greek the perfect tense, which means action that is finished and completed, settled, done, put in place for good. So in other words, it's not the future tense. He doesn't say, it will be completed someday. It's not the present tense, I am completing it. It's not even the past tense, I did complete it. It's, it's the perfect tense, which is even stronger than the past. It's like, I completed it, and it is signed, sealed, done, delivered, established, kaput. It's done. It'll never need to be done again. It's perfect. It's perfected. It's the once-for-all test text tense. And so, Jesus says, it is finished. It's done. It's, it's over. He's completed the work. Now, this text, the it is finished text, as well as going back to Hebrews, the once-for-all idea, if I can sort of address kind of a, a related issue. This has been an important text historically in, in the kind of contention between Roman Catholic theology and Protestant theology. This has been one of those kind of key texts, one of these key ideas, especially when it comes to the Eucharist, to the celebration of communion. Uh, many of you here grew up Roman Catholic. You know that in Roman Catholic theology, the, the communion table is actually believed to be the literal sacrifice of Christ. So that when the priest says the words of institution over the, the bread and the wine, the, the teaching is in Roman Catholic theology that it literally becomes, literally, the body and blood of Jesus. It doesn't look like blood. It doesn't taste like body. It still tastes like bread and wine. But, but even though the outward, the accidents of it is what it's called, look like bread and wine, it really is the literal body and blood of Jesus. So in a sense, that Old Testament sacrifice is brought forward, the, uh, sorry, Old Testament, the new covenant sacrifice of Christ is brought forward and the language of the catechism is it's represented to God again. So the once for all sacrifice is represented. And so the catechism says that it, it actually is a sacrifice. So in other words, during the Eucharist in Roman Catholic theology, it's not just a memorial reminding us of Christ's death, which it is. And it's not just that Christ is spiritually present with us through the Holy Spirit, which I believe he is. I believe at communion the Lord is fellowshipping with us in a special way. But it's a step further. It's saying that that is actually a sacrifice. And that's the language used in the Catechism, that it's a sacrifice. And, and it says, in fact, in the Catechism, that it, that it is a propitiatory sacrifice, that it's actually turning away the wrath of God at that point. And, and that it actually washes away venial sins. You know, that's the language. And so this was a big contention between Protestants and Roman Catholics because, you know, Protestantism, which is a fundamentally a rediscovery of Scripture, says, whoa, whoa, but it was once for all. 
it is finished. You know what? What? It's done. How could it be a sacrifice again and again? That's taking us backwards, not forwards. You know? So why am I bringing this up? I mean, is it because I like to kick around other religions? I mean, no. I mean, if you know my preaching, you know that's not my M.O. But the reason I'm bringing this up is, is because, because I'm a gospel minister. My job is to proclaim the gospel to you. And, and this is a fundamental part of the gospel. And I know that in this room, the majority of people here probably grew up with that theology or somehow informed by that theological system. And I don't want you to be held in bondage to those kinds of ideas. Because I think what happens, unfortunately, in, in the Roman Catholic Mass is that the focus shifts from the gospel to the sacrament. And so you kind of become bound almost superstitiously to the sacrament itself as opposed to understanding that Christ died once for all. And so it sort of makes more out of the sacrament than it should be. In fact, let me just read you this line from the Catechism. This one really, I, I just find this troubling. Okay? The Catechism says, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. My brothers and sisters, that's just not true. It's not the source of your Christian life. It's not the summit. It's not the highest point of Christian living. That's not, it's not the, the pinnacle of being a Christian is, is taking the sacrament. It's important Christ gave it to us. But I think what that does is, so it's ironic, I think that the sacrament kind of ends up undercutting the actual gospel itself, which is a great irony. And so I tell this to you because I know that many of you are raised Catholic and I, I wasn't, but I keep hearing about this thing, Catholic guilt. I don't know. I've heard about it like from so many people. I know not every Catholic has Catholic guilt, but I've heard about it so many times that, and I've counseled people with Catholic guilt. And I just want to say to you, you don't have to be guilty. Christ was sacrificed once for all. It is finished. There is freedom in Christ. But let's keep moving on here. Let's look at the next text. It's verses 11 to 14. Here's our second Old Testament text. This is actually not a quotation. This is more of an allusion. This is the second Old Testament text used to prove the once-for-all nature of Jesus' sacrifice. And we'll do a little pop quiz. See if you can figure out what text is being alluded to here, because it's not quoted directly. It says, verse 11, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, here we go, he sat down at the right hand of God, since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Can you, anyone guess the Old Testament allusion? Psalm, Psalm 110, thanks. Yeah, that's right. We've seen Psalm 110 like three or four times already in Hebrews. It keeps coming back. And this is sort of a favorite text. So here's Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So again, that text is taken, but now applied to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. So here's the contrast. Verse 11. Day after day, not once-for-all, but day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice. So here you have the priest on his feet. Some of you have jobs where you're on your feet all day. On your feet all day. Offering sacrifice after sacrifice. It's like the priests were on, you know, they're kind of like in retail. You know, they're just... Boop, you know, checking through, boop, item after item, boop. Or, or maybe he's like on an assembly line, you know, he's, he's got the drill, the gun, you know, the next one comes along, and, and so here he is every day, 
sacrificing, sacrificing. He just never quits. keeps going and going and going. And he's on his feet standing. Then you contrast that with verse 12 with Jesus. When this priest had offered for all time one, one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down. He took a load off. He's off his feet. He's no longer standing doing the work. He's now sitting in the place of completion. So because Christ sat, that's a second Old Testament evidence that it's a once-for-all work. He doesn't have to do it again. He's completed. It's done. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. Jesus will not come back a second time. We're not going to have Easter the sequel. It's done. He's not going to come back a second time to do that work. He's coming back a second time, but in victory, not to die. In fact, look at verse 14. He says, Because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I just want you to focus on that for a minute. You might find this helpful in your Christian life. By one sacrifice, He made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, in one sense, as Christians, we've been made perfect forever. In another sense, we're still being made holy. And I know maybe you felt that tension in your Christian life sometimes. On the one hand, I've been perfected forever. I'm once for all cleansed in Christ. When God looks at me, He sees a perfected Jeremy through the blood of Christ. But I'm also still being made holy. I still wrestle with sin. But, but it's kind of the outworking of my position in Christ. So this is this kind of interesting tension in the Christian life. We call this the doctrine of justification, that we've been declared righteous in Jesus. We've been made perfect. But we're also living that out, and that's the doctrine of sanctification. We're becoming more holy over time. So this is an interesting little verse. When you find yourself frustrated as a Christian at your continuing struggle with sin, And then we have the third quotation. It's verses 15 to 18. And this is one that we've heard before. It's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31 about the new covenant, which we've studied already. It says, The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant, the new covenant, I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. So unlike the Old Testament, the first covenant under Moses, which had stone tablets, in the new covenant... The law of God is written on our hearts. So in other words, to be part of the new covenant in Christ, you have to be born again. You have to become a Christian by the Holy Spirit's power working in your heart. But then he goes on. Look at verse 17. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. In the new covenant, there's no memory of our sin. Because, therefore, verse 18, when these things are forgiven... There's no longer any sacrifice. So the logic is Jesus must, the new covenant must involve a once for all sacrifice if sins are actually atoned for. So there's the logic again. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That God can't remember my sins? How does that work? He's omniscient. How can God not? I remember my sins. Do you remember your sins? I remember some of mine. I have some doozies I remember. And God doesn't remember it? Like, God, you really don't remember that? Yeah, we remember our sins, and somehow God doesn't. I was reading a story about a guy who remembered his sins. I've, I've been telling you this about this little biography I've been reading on Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a British preacher, 20th century. And Lloyd-Jones had been a medical doctor, sort of at the top of his field, and he resigned that and became a pastor among some very poor people in southern England. And he was ministering there among them. And God did a wonderful work of revival. People became Christians. One of the guys who became Christian... Do you guys remember that I told you this a couple weeks ago? Stratfordshire Bill? 
Remember I told you that story? He was kind of like the rough guy in town. He was the hard drinking, hard swearing, hard fighting. The, the bad dude that all the other bad dudes just kind of gave some space to because he was that bad. And he became a Christian. He was just miraculously transformed by Christ's power. And his transformation just kind of set the whole community abuzz. Well, even after he became a Christian, he started to be haunted by some of the things he did in the past. His old life came back to him. I'm just going to read you this little segment. Okay, so it says that, in fact, it was very soon after he became a Christian, after his first time at the communion table, at the Lord's table, that same Sunday night, after his very first communion, he was at home reflecting on his privilege as a Christian as he sat at home that same Sunday night. He was thrown down by a thought which came as a bolt from the blue. Many years before, as a young man in a public house argument, and just forgive the language here, okay? He had called the Lord Jesus Christ a bastard. Like, whew, that's, that's pretty guilty <laughs> to blaspheme Jesus like that. As this far-off memory came back to him, it seemed to him as though the gates of heaven were suddenly shut against him. His grief and misery were almost complete. And so he just suddenly found himself in despair. You know, that can happen as a Christian. All of a sudden, something from the past you've done just comes into your mind like that. Maybe it is a, a, a terrible blasphemy like what he said publicly about the Lord Jesus. Or maybe it's some failure. You, you know, maybe it's a, a failed marriage or a failed uh, relationship with a child or with a coworker, or something we regret that we did and, and that just comes out of nowhere back into our minds and it just debilitates you in your Christian life. So you're like, oh, why did I do that? And suddenly, rather than feeling free in Christ, we feel chained and thrown down. And so this guy runs to Martin Lloyd-Jones' house. It's early in the morning. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his wife are still sleeping. They get the knock at the door. And she says, uh, the wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, we're not likely to forget the sight that met our eyes as we opened the door. Poor Stratford Trebell looked as wretched, hopeless, and woebegone as he felt. He came in and I left them together while he told the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, his pitiful story. It was no easy task to persuade him that he could be forgiven. The enormity of his sins was all he could see at first, but lovingly and patiently he was shown from the Word of God that he could indeed be forgiven and that, his, that this heinous sin, like all others, had been washed away by the precious blood of Christ. You want to know why God can't remember our sins? It's not that God has no good memory. God knows what we did. But he doesn't remember our sins because they aren't our sins anymore. They're on Christ on the cross. So from God's perspective, I actually don't have any. That's why there's nothing to remember. Because they're Christ's now. And they're buried they're buried forever in Christ. And so we're free. And that's why I said this can change your life as a Christian. Because I, I think we continue to approach God from this standpoint of, of guilt from our past. And, and I believe the enemy, I've talked about this before, the enemy dredges up that old junk and throws it at us in the present. And we're like, oh, I can never be used by God. And so there's some of you here, you are a Christian, you've been saved, but your life has been unproductive for Christ. And part of it is you've been hobbled by this guilt. And you feel like a second-class Christian. Like there's the real good Christians, 
who are on track with God, and I'm one of these people who has a real checkered past, and I'm broken. Once for all, brother. Once for all. It's buried with Christ. You need to be free. I think some of us, it's easy to just live the Christian life out of a sense of guilt. You know, I talk about Catholic guilt. There's Protestant guilt too. There's fundamentalist guilt. Okay? And even, you know, guilt is not the prerogative of any one denomination. This is something we wrestle with. And so I think as Christians, we can even approach God on a basis of constant guilt. That we're living the Christian life because we don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to be a bad kid or whatever it is in our minds. Rather than being motivated out of the Christian life, out of a sense of joy and thanksgiving. I mean, you can live the same Christian life from completely different wellsprings. One is a wellspring of guilt and condemnation and fear. The other is living the Christian life out of joy and thankfulness. And it will make all the difference in the tone and quality and and long-term success of your Christian life to live out of joy. Uh, You know, God is not the angry parent who can never be pleased. God is the one who has become our parent because He is pleased with His Son, Jesus. Let me say that again. God is not the angry parent who could never be pleased. God is the one who has become our parent. He's adopted us because He was pleased with the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So don't let your Christian life be motivated by guilt and fear and dread. Be free. I even think it affects us in the church. You know, In the church, we're, we're ultimately going to have conflicts in the church. There's no church without conflicts. I mean, all these people, all these personalities, we're going to grate against each other. What a difference it makes when I can look at you and you can look at me even though we irritate or even if we sin against each other and I can know that I see once for all written on your forehead. And you look at my forehead and you see it is finished. And we know that God has forgiven us. That we're both reconciled. And so now I'm, I'm in a conflict with someone who is a blood-bought child of God. That's going to change the tone and tenor of our relationship in the church, even as we work through disagreements, sins, and offenses that we're inevitably probably going to commit against each other living in community. That happens when you live in a community. It happens in every family. And we're the family of God. It's going to happen here too. But it changes the way we address it. And I could go on with applications, so I'll, I'll just end with this one. I hope that if you're not a Christian, I hope that this once-for-all concept helps you to see what Christianity is really about. Because I think one of the biggest misconceptions that's out there, and sometimes we as Christians perpetuate, is that the heart of the Christian message is a list of do's and don'ts. A list of religious rituals. And I just want you to see that the heart of the Christian message is what God has done in Christ. It's about not about getting more religious or getting more righteous. It's about receiving a gift of love. The once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Last Sunday, Blake Johnson did this thing, and I, like, I really liked it. I'd like to do it again. Would, would you just take a few moments of silence to, to reflect upon whatever it is God's been speaking to your heart and to turn it back to Him in prayer?
Oh Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would set us free with the truth. Lord, may your atonement unlock our souls to a vibrant, joy-filled Christian response to your grace and mercy. Oh God, set us free from guilt, false guilt. Set us free, Lord, from anger and resentment. Enable us to forgive as you have forgiven. God, set us free to be your servants in the world, not shackled by sins that you've already died for. We thank you, God, that you can't remember our sins because they were taken away by Christ. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm always looking for an excuse to sing my favorite hymn. This is a great excuse this Sunday. So would you turn to hymn number 705? Hymn number 705. Would you stand? We're going to sing this a cappella. Okay, you all ready? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, it is well with my soul, it is 
is well, it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Amen. After the service, our prayer team is here over in the alcove. They'd love to pray with you. Pray for someone you're concerned about confidentially. I'd love to invite you downstairs for a cup of coffee afterwards. Uh, we're presenting version 2.0 of our draft doctrinal statement, so we'd love for you to come down and hear about that and give us feedback. And if you haven't done so already, think about signing up for one service each week to sit downstairs in the overflow room. And uh, you can sign up out there in the foyer. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would send us forth as liberated people bringing the joy of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice to a world that is in slavery to day-after-day behavior. And so, God, may we bring this amazing gospel truth once for all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.